And it is my sincere hope we're going to bring this series on hope to an end tonight. In fact, we kind of have to because I want to, we're going to be away for um, uh, two weeks and then when I come back I want to begin, uh, I want to begin teaching on the renewing of your mind. And it's something that I've taught years ago um, when Pastor Sam was here, he decided to start a little Bible school which would run for four weeks. And um, I was not on staff at the time, I was still practicing law and uh, we had uh, a course on evangelism, we had a course on healing, we had a course on the family, and I was asked to put together a course on renewing the mind. And I don't know why he asked me to do that, but he did. And God is so good, because the night I was asked, between the night I was asked and got home that night, God dropped the entire outline in my, into my mind. So I knew it was, a God, I, it, was, it was God's will to teach that. And we've taught that many times, and then when we started School of Ministry, uh, in 1998, we incorporated that into the second year program. So there's some students that went through school of ministry several years ago, uh, and I could not continue in it because I s- stepped into this role. Uh, so they never got that course. And a year or so ago, I gave you smatterings of it on a Wednesday night. And with um, um, the schedule that's come up with school of ministry and my schedule, I really can't do it. So I decided to take Wednesday nights and teach it. And um, it fits right in with what we're doing on Sunday morning because uh, Sunday morning we've been talking about the, the upside-down kingdom, how the kingdom of God operates on certain principles and that the world operates on perversions of those principles. And so once you're saved, we're, we've got an entrance back into the kingdom of God. That's where we are. But we still think the way we used to in the world. And so really learning how to walk in the blessings of God and all the provision of God involves learning to think differently because you will not act differently than you think. Uh, And so it it really starts, and the Bible tells us that in Romans chapter 12. It shows us that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Not the removing of it. Sometimes I want to remove it or remove some others. And so we're going to take some time and just go through that and lay some very important principles out which you will find can be life-changing if you'll listen to them and you'll apply them. And these are principles that, that I've learned not really out of a book, but by realizing there were areas of my thinking that were stinking thinking. And I needed to change how I thought, and God was very faithful to teach me how to do that. And then out of that came this course. So I'm very excited to teach that when we, in a couple of weeks, we'll start it. But we need to finish up hope right now. And there's a final part of this subject I want to get into. But before we do, I want to turn to Romans chapter 5. What we've been talking about uh, is why hope is so important. We talked about hope is important because the Bible says that it is the anchor of your soul in Hebrews chapter 6. The soul is the part of you, and we'll learn much more about that in renewing the mind, but the soul is your personality part of you. It's your mind, your will, and your emotions. And and it really is the area where you'll read books that'll talk about the mind is the battlefield. the, the, The battlefield is the mind. But the battle's not for your mind. The battle's for your will. But the battle's fought in your mind. So your, your soul is a part of you that, that you feel, has emotions. And we learn that, that, that our, our... I don't know if you ever... Do you ever have moods? Yeah. Or just emotions. You have one day, you're just flying high, and the next day, nothing's changed. It's like you feel like you've got to crawl up to get to ground level. And you, you, know, you go to sleep feeling great and you wake up feeling like the pits. And what happened? 
Well, that's because you're an emotional. There's an emotional part of you that's affected by the, your what you ate when you went to bed, and uh, by the things you dreamt about, and all those kinds of things affect us. And so we, you know, we we can think we're just, you know, we we just think that growth means that, you know, at least I do, is that, you know, you, I, I well, I, I figured this out, I've mastered this, now I'm going to go on to this. And then about three more steps later, I feel like I'm back here again, or two steps backwards. Do you ever feel like it's one step forward, two steps backwards? And on a good day, it's two steps forward and one step backward? That's because the soul, your soul, your emotions don't, ever, don't stay in the same place. But that doesn't mean you're not progressing. And so we saw that hope provides an anchor for the soul, so that while you're going through all that, you don't move. I mean, you may move around the anchor, but your location doesn't move. And then we saw that, that hope is important because it's what your faith gives substance to. And without hope, you have no target for your faith. So we saw why it is important. And then we went on to, to talk about what it is, that it's a confident, steadfast assurance. It's not a wish. It's not, well, I, I hope it's going to be better. It's a confident, steadfast assurance of a positive change or a positive result. And so that's what the word hope means. And then we talked about what the ultimate hope is. And the ultimate hope, and we're going to finish that and get into the, the last part of this. The ultimate hope is not in the things of this world. We saw in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen that Paul says, If our hope is in Christ in this world alone, we're of all men to be most pitied. And what a remarkable statement that is to, to say, Paul saying, if, if our hope in Christ is all we have, then we're to be pitied. But what he's saying is, of our hope in Christ that we know of in this world is the only hope we have. So he's telling us that the real hope, the substantial basis for hope, is nothing that's in this world. If Christ in this world isn't enough, then certainly nothing else that the world has to offer can be a basis of hope. So we learned it's not your car, it's not your house, it's not your... You know, it's funny, and I'm just being really real with you. I, like you, go through times when, you know, I feel just everything's confident. It isn't just because everything's going well. I'm just, you know, I know I'm just in, in, in the groove with God. And then there are other times when it doesn't feel like that. All right? And it doesn't feel like that. And that's when all the contradicting circumstances start getting to you. See, when you feel like you're in that groove... The devil can throw all hell at you and it doesn't matter because you don't pay any attention. The sun's shining and you're just looking up at the sun. It doesn't matter. But it's when you feel as if you're out of that groove that all those things begin to get at you a little bit and begin and get under your... Am I the only one that ever has that happen? All right, okay. And so, so that's when I wake up and realize, wait a minute, I've started putting my hope in the things... In this world, and understand the things in this world don't have to be cars and TVs and you know yachts and all kinds of stuff like that. It can be people. It can be people, and the Holy Spirit's very good at showing you where you've misplaced your hope. Because people that you put your hope in can suddenly not be there, even for good reasons. And then you feel like, oh, I'm all alone, nothing's working. Well, God hasn't left you. God hasn't fallen off His throne. The promises of the Word of God about what God's going to be doing and what our hope future is, they haven't changed. That means if I'm beginning to feel hopeless, that's because that's a sign that my hope has shifted from the things that the Word of God says they should be in 
to other things. And you can be in one place one day and just begin to gravitate. Gravitate? What is that? Gravitate. <laughs> gravitate gradually. In the, and here's why. Because understand this. Like I can't spend too much time on this. See, see, life is like a river that's flowing in a direction. That's what Jesus said. There's two paths, well, in this case a river. And he says there's one that's wide and it's easy to get into and there are lots of people in it. And it's the flow, it's the river's flow of life. And it's flowing in a direction. The problem is where it's going because it's headed to hell and destruction. And that's where all of us were when we were God saved. We were somewhere on this road, this river, flowing in a And you don't have to do anything to flow in this direction. And you've got lots of company because everybody's flowing with you. But then you get saved and you discover in the Word of God, this is going the wrong direction. And I don't want to go where it's headed. So the word repent means you just turned around. But you know, you can turn around and still be going in that direction. <laughs> At some point, you've got to stop and start heading in the other direction. Well, when you start heading in the other direction, everything around you is pushing the other way and is trying to push you the other way. So this is work going in this direction. So when you're tired, when you're lonely, when you get frustrated, it's easy to start giving in because it's hard to keep pushing against this. That's what Paul said. He says you keep pushing against the pricks. You keep pushing against the flow that's against you. And when, but understand this. When you're tempted to give up, remember where this goes. <laughs> it doesn't go to good places. That's what the book of Hebrews is written about. And so we've got to continue to keep pushing back. And the problem is, the we, reason we start getting tired is we stop looking at the goal. Could, oh, this is good. I never taught this before. Because the only, way, the only difference that you can see in these two directions is the end result. Because it, otherwise it looks the same. All you see is river and river bank and people. And in fact, if you're not looking at the goal it looks a lot more attractive to go this way because that's where everybody else is going. And we're just creature, we're, 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 we're creatures of, 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 of social creatures. We like to be among the group. We don't want to stand out and be different. We want to feel like we're accepted. And so the crowd's going this way. The natural flow of this earth is going this way. And so if all I'm looking at is what... I've never taught this before. If all I'm looking at is what's going on around me, I won't see any motivation to keep pushing this way. So I'll start looking and see the devil knows this. He'll get you looking at people. He'll get you looking at you. He'll get you looking at the river you're in or the path you're in and say, oh, you're never going to amount to anything. How old are you after all? And what have you accomplished in life? And look at people around you you went to school with. Look at what... I was doing that today. I couldn't believe I was doing that today. Thinking about other people that I know and where, they've, where they are and how big their church is. I know not to do that. And wondering, why was I starting to feel this way? And then I realized, wait a minute, what have you been looking at? And so as long as you're looking at what's around you and your circumstances, there's no, there's no motivation to keep pushing against the flow of the river. However, if you want to take a glance over your shoulder and see where that one goes, you've got to decide, I don't want to go there. 
But even better than that, look at where this one goes. And when you've got your eye on the goal, now the stuff that's in your way doesn't matter so much. Because you'll keep pushing because your eye is on the goal. This is how the Apostle Paul not only made it and finished his course, but he said at the end, he finished it with joy. And he went through some stuff. And there were times he got discouraged. Second Corinthians chapter two, uh, chapter Second Corinthians chapter one. He says he even despaired of life at one point. He wanted to die and get out of here. In Second Corinthians chapter eleven, he cried out. To, chapter twelve, he said he cried out to God three times because of the overwhelmingness of what was coming against him. And look in chapter eleven, and you'll get some idea of what he was dealing with. The pressures that were coming. Understand this: Satan opposes the word of God. Two thirds of this New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. The entire doctrine that we are saved by grace was a revelation that Jesus gave to him. Don't you think the devil wanted to get him to quit until he finished his course? So he learned how to go and push against that, and he learned the secret of what we're just about to read. Romans chapter 5. Now chapter 4 Go to, explains again that we're saved by faith in Christ only. And chapter 4 talks about what faith is. It's got one of the clearest explanations of faith in the Bible, starting around verse 16 and 17. Because he's explaining what this faith is in Christ that saves us. And so that's the background here. And he says at the end of it, Verse 23 of chapter 4, Now this was written not for his sake alone, that was Abraham's, that it was imputed to him. It says he was, righteousness was imputed to Abraham because he believed in God. But it was imputed to us, verse 24, who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, and who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, having been, not will be, but having been, justified. That means made right in God's eyes. Having been justified by faith, we have, not will have when we get to heaven, we have right here peace with God. Not peace with everything around us. In fact, the world we live in and now this nation is becoming more and more hostile to us. So don't be shocked if we have less and less peace between the church and our government and our society. But it's not the first time that's happened. But he's talking about peace with God. And if you've got peace with God, then you're able to stand when people around you don't have peace with you. Okay. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You and I stand in a position of grace with God. There was a time before there was a grace, was grace, and there will be a time when grace ends. So grace, this age of grace we're in, is like a parenthesis. The Old Testament did not have grace. You messed up, you died. 
And there will be a time when this parenthesis of grace ends. And so we need to be thankful and never take for granted that we are in this time of grace and not take that grace for granted and presume upon it. In which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, the coming and the revealing of the glory of God. So he's talking about the fact that we have peace with God, we have access into this grace, and we rejoice, that's talking future now, we rejoice in the glory, hope, remember hope's future. Because it says, if you hope for what you've not seen, we wait eagerly for it. We hope in the glory of God. Not only that, now this is where it gets strange. This is where you begin to separate Paul from the rest of the people, and this is the place we need to come to. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. How many of that in your refrigerator? <laughs> Knowing. See, he didn't just say, oh, let's have, see, that would, this, there's something wrong with somebody's head that says, I, it's fun to have tribulation. Unless you understand what tribulation means. And he's about to explain it. This is where Paul learned to think differently than most Christians. And this is why Paul succeeded and finished his course with joy, and so many don't. Excuse me, even today. Not only that, we glory in tribulations. Why? Knowing something. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or steadfastness. And that's what we're talking about. Hope is an anchor to your soul. It keeps you steadfast. See, that's what this is talking about. When all the stuff, the flow is against you, all the, the junk that's in the river, that's floating and bumping up against you and trying to move you back, people talking to you, say, why are you crazy going that way? You're headed the wrong way. What's wrong with you? Your friends laugh at you. Your family persecutes you and laugh at you. But that's because they're headed the other way. And you get, can get discouraged. And that's why hope is the future. Hope is the future, but that's the anchor that keeps you headed in the right direction in persevering. Hope in the tribulation. Tribulation is the stuff that's flowing against you. It has the purpose of knocking you off course, turning you back around and getting you going where everything else is going, which is to destruction. And so Paul says, knowing, knowing this, that tribulation produces perseverance. Now, hold something there, and let's go to James chapter 1. We'll get a little more of an understanding here. This is written by James, the brother of Jesus. Verse 2. Well-known verse. My brethren, because it was written to Christians, count it all joy when you fall into various trials or tribulations. What are we to do? Count it all joy. And we've talked about this before. We don't, you, when you're going through tribulation, it's not a natural emotion to feel joy. 
the natural emotion is to feel, woe is me, why is this happening to me, and all that stuff. So you've got to make a choice, an act of your will, how you're going to respond to that tribulation. And that's what the word count means. It's an act of your will. That I don't feel it, but God says to count it all joy. And again, He's going to tell you why. Not just an act of faith or a blind obedience. Knowing something, just as in we just read. Knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces something. It produces endurance or patience. And let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And here's the issue. Because what happens is when the pressure comes on, when the tribulation comes on, when the testing and the trying comes, what we're tempted to do is to do the easiest thing, which is to let go, to give in, and go with the flow. But if we understand this principle, we'll realize, but if I press against it... See, the devil, you do know he's a liar. Because when that pressure comes against you, he's going to tell you it's going to wear you out, you won't make it, you're too tired, you're fi- you don't have enough faith, you don't have this, you don't have that, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you don't have enough, therefore you might as well just give in and go with the flow, all right? Keep something there. We're going all over the place today. And go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This was not where I planned to go tonight, but this is where God's taken us. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. No? <laughs> first Corinthians chapter 10. I was right the first time. <laughs> A little Bible exercise here. Now, he's talking here about the example of the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And he's talking about the tribulation that they went through. And he says here at the beginning of that chapter that this story is in the Old Testament because it's an example to us. So that means God's put this story in the Old Testament as an example to us so we can learn something from their mistake. goes on to say God was not well pleased with them. They didn't mean they, that means they didn't pass the test. Verse 10. No temptation. No temptation. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. So one of the lies the devil will tell you is nobody's ever gone through anything like this. Well, the Word of God says he doesn't have anything new. We've at other times gone back and looked in the garden and see the devices that he used on Eve and then on Adam and discovered they're the same thing he uses today. He doesn't have any new tricks. So it's not... Why do we fall for them? No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, look at this, but God is faithful. Not you. God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted 
beyond that which you are able. So you're going through this trial and temptation. Automatically you know, before God allowed it to come against you, He already determined you were able. Now He didn't say you agreed with Him. But God, God will not allow you to go through something He has not already predetermined that you are able, look at this, that you are able, and with the temptation, He will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So back to James chapter 1. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces endurance, let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So God's goal for what you're going through, He didn't cause it, but He allowed it. His goal... For the, and we're not talking about sickness and disease. Because Jesus bore that for us. There, there's two types of suffering that the Bible talks about. And if you don't understand the difference, you'll get confused. There's a type... I'm on my fourth lesson here tonight. There's a type that Jesus bore for us. He bore our sins in His own body in the tree that we being dead to sin might be alive under righteousness. So we don't have to deal with the judgment for sin because Jesus bore that sin for us. But it goes on to says, and by His stripes we are healed. He's talking about the physical wounding of His body paid for the complete redemption of our body, not just when we get to heaven, but the healing of our body. We know that because in Matthew, Matthew 8, 17, Jesus quotes that part of the scripture to refer to physical healing of the body. So that's not talking about spiritual wholeness. That's talking about physical wholeness because Jesus quotes that to refer to physical healing. So Jesus, the suffering that, that Jesus, there's some suffering Jesus went through as our substitute. So if somebody's been your substitute, you don't need to go through it. So there's a type of suffering we don't need to go through because Jesus went through it as our substitute. But there's another type of suffering that Jesus went through as our example of how to handle that. And that was the persecution that He went through. He was mocked. He was rejected. He was, he was humiliated. He was just plain not listened to. That Jesus went through as an example of how we are to handle it. That's a type of suffering, the Bible says, that is accordance with the will of God because it's actually a testimony that you belong to Him that the world's recognizing they don't know you because they don't know Him. Everybody following me so far? So what he's saying here is, he's saying here, there's a perfection that God wants to bring in your character. And that perfection does not happen by sitting on a beach somewhere sipping lemonade with nobody around you. Because in those cases, you don't grow. Just as your body only grows when you exert it against some force, like barbells or weights, 
or you run or you get on a treadmill or you actually make your body do something, you push against something, that's where the strength comes from. In fact, they discovered when they first put the astronauts up in weightlessness for extended periods of time, they came back, they couldn't walk. Their muscles, these are grown men in excellent physical condition when they went up there because they hadn't had to, they used their muscles, but because it was weightless, there was nothing that they were pushing against. So they had to invent those bands that stretch and things like that. So they were able to create stress that they had to resist because the resisting of the stress created strength. And that's what he's talking about here. So when that stress comes against us, when the pressures come against us because of the flow of life and rivers of of, of people going the other way, pushing against us, we are to count that all joy. Why? Because we know it's an opportunity for us to grow and mature. That doesn't mean you automatically... Stress doesn't produce that result. It's what you do with it any more than the barbells produce strength. It's only when you use them. Other than for a clothes rack or something like that. So we, we rejoice when we're going through these pressures because we understand that if we'll resist it, God's going to use that to produce a maturing in us where we get stronger and stronger and stronger and more and more like Him. All right, go back to Romans 5 now. Verse 3, not only that, but we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And that's what we've just been talking about. And perseverance produces, the New King James just says character, but the uh, the New American Standard says godly character. So perseverance, which means pressing back against the flow, will produce in us a godly character, which is what God's really after produces us in a godly character. And notice what the next verse says. And godly character then produces something. It produces hope. Remember what hope is? A confident, steadfast expectation of something good. Last time we talked about this two weeks ago, we talked about that that hope that we have is that ultimately when we get to the end of this press that what's at the end here is that light and we're going to stand in His presence. And we looked at, second, we looked at 1 John uh, chapter 3 and we saw at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, it says when we stand before Him, are we going to have confidence or not? The confidence is going to come by how well we persevered. So if we just gave in and did what's easy and we, we, we end up facing Him but we're right back here, and we started out over there, we're not going to have the same level of confidence that we are if we stood against this, if we continue to resist. The last part of Hebrews chapter 10 says that my soul, God's soul, takes no pleasure in those who turn back. So the idea that we get saved and then we just pull our feet up in the boat and, well, we're saved by grace... So now I'm in, everything's fine, but the problem is, what's happening? We're drifting in the wrong direction. And so, well, well, do we eventually go over that cliff? Well, I don't know about you, I don't want to get close to it. Because 
whether you go over the cliff or not, if you don't, you're going to stand in front of him. And we talked last time about, are we going to have confidence? It's not based on our works. It's going to be based on whether or not we were steadfast. That's what he says here. He says, the hope comes from being steadfast, not quitting. Because it's interesting, because the end of chapter chapter uh, 10 of Hebrews talks about, but therefore, but the just shall live by faith. And chapter 11 begins with the definition of faith, which is based on hope. Right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Well, the things that are hoped for is what's at the other end of that river. And that's what it shows us here. We know this. The tribulation produces perseverance if we press against it. Perseverance produces proven character. Proven character. And proven character produces hope. Now look at verse 5. Now hope, this is godly hope, does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who was given to us. So many times this verse is quoted as proof that we are capable of giving God's love because God has put His love in us when the Holy Spirit came in us. And that's true, but that's not what this verse is saying. That point's true, but that's not what this verse is saying. Because this verse is talking about why we have hope. And the, the reason we can have hope is because God's already shown us what it's like at the other end of the river. What our reception's going to be like. God's already shown us that our reception at the other end of the river is the reception of God's loving for loving us. Then the reason we know that is because He's already put in us a down payment of what that's going to be like. The Holy Spirit in you is the proof of God's love for you. The Holy Spirit in you is the down payment, the guarantee, the earnest. What is down payment? What is earnest money? It's something that the seller gives you so you can have confidence that the rest of what he's promised he's going to do, he's going to do. It's not the whole thing. Typically when you're buying a house, you're going to have to put down 10% or whatever. Let's say 10%, 5%, 10% of the whole thing. That makes the buy the seller nice and warm and fuzzy <laughs> that the rest of the money's going to come. Because you parted with 10% of it. And if you don't follow through, you lose the 10%. So you lose the $25,000 or whatever it is. So they've got pretty good confidence that if all possible, you're going to come up with the rest of that money. So it gives them a hope. It gives them a confidence, steadfast assurance that you're going to come through with the rest of what you said you're going to do. In the same way, the Holy Spirit deposited in us 
as weak, messed up, ignorant as we were and still are to a large degree, yet God has deposited in us His own precious Spirit as a down payment, earnest money, so we can have confidence, assurance, or a hope that the rest of what God said is waiting us when we get here. Why do we need that? Because between here and there, we got to push aside the seaweed. We got to move the logs out of the way. We got to be sit there and push against people going the other way, laughing at us and saying, you're not getting anywhere. Why don't you go with the crowd, let alone your own feelings, let alone the devil screaming at you, telling you you've wasted all this time and you're not getting anywhere. You're all alone. Nobody else sees me. But my eyes are on the hope. And I know that I'm not going to be disappointed because already inside of me is a down payment that that will not disappoint me that's what that verse is saying and yes I can have confidence that I have God's love in me to give because God's spirit in me but the it says there that we will not be disappointed Disappointment means I'm expecting something and I don't know whether I'm going to get it or not. And you've got to have that confidence because between here and there, you're putting up with all kinds of things. Every day you get up, you've got to deal with stuff. You've got to move it aside and you've got to get it out of the way and you've got to keep pressing when nobody else is pressing. Why? What keeps Paul going? What keeps us going? It's the hope. And that hope won't disappoint. And the reason I know that hope won't disappoint is God's already put in me a down payment. A guarantee. One of the translations of that word, it's Arabon. One of the translations means is engagement ring. We have a saying here when we have events for married couples and we open it up for engaged And we'll say, it's for real engaged couple. Officially engaged. What makes an official engagement is the ring. Because when you've got the ring, you've got a tangible commitment. She's got something she can show everybody that you're serious. She has a hope. You put put some money up. (laughs) And you put it on her finger for her to show everybody. So you're on the line, guys. That's where her hope comes from. That's the same word that's used for the earnest that the Holy Spirit is inside of us. All right. Now, go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to talk about the opposite side of this now. Having gotten all excited about this. Ephesians 2, verse 12. Well, verse 11. Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcised were made in the flesh by hands. At that time when you were without Christ. Now this is written to, this is written to Christians that were not Jews by birth. So the circumcision and uncircumcision refers to whether you were born a Jew or not born a Jew, whether you're in covenant with God under the Old Testament or not. Therefore, remember, you once Gentiles in the flesh, in other words, in your flesh, you were outside of the covenant of God, 
who were called uncircumcised by that which is called circumcision, that's the Jews, were made in the flesh by hands. At that time, you were without Christ. This is where people without Christ are. You were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, the family of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise. Look at this. Having no hope and without God in the world. So what we're going to talk about to finish this out is what it's like to have no hope. And notice what the Bible says. That when you are without Christ, you have no hope and you are without God in this world. I'm going to say that's a heavy statement. Because there are people out there believing they're with God. The world is desperately trying to come up with some kind of hope. And God says there is none. God says there is none. The stock market could go up 500 points. There still is none. All of a sudden, Congress could come together and fall in love with each other and start passing all kinds of good things for us. And as wonderful as that would be, that doesn't change what God says. Because hope is not in this world. Without Christ, you are separated from the covenant of God and you have no hope. And you are without God in this world. Now let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, let's start in verse 9. Now, he's writing to people that were getting so excited that Jesus was coming back that they were living an unruly life. And we have that going on today, not so much because people are conscious that Jesus is coming back, but because they're so conscious of the grace that we live in right now. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves were taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, that means outside of Christ, and that you may lack nothing. So he's saying you need to live a decent, orderly life. You need to work and not be lazy, uh, and because others are watching you. But notice this. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no... Has what? Have no what? Hope. It's so interesting to hear people in the world talk about what happens after you die. It's not something they want to think about. Or they come up with all kinds of, 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 of ways of handling it. 
It's an issue we all know we have to face. And we all try, not all, but most of us try to avoid it. Just ask a life insurance salesman. It's a tough job because you've got to sell them something they need, but they don't want to face that they need. Because in order to face that they need, they've got to face something that you don't want to face because they don't have answers. And so people come up with all kinds of things. I'm to the point of so ridiculous that I've heard people say, and on more than one occasion, ah, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends are. We just have a party there. And without God in this world, they have no idea what they're saying. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. On the other hand, if you have loved ones who have died that are in Christ, and you're in Christ, you have a hope. Because they're at the other end also. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who are asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now this wasn't his own idea. This is a word Jesus spoke to him. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend with a heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him. That's where the rapture comes from. You won't find the word rapture in the Bible. It comes from that word to be taken away, pulled away. And it implies suddenly snatched. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But notice verse 13. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren which means it's possible for us to do so. Concerning those who are asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. Why do they have no hope? Because they're without Christ and therefore without God and without hope in this world. So what is our hope? Our hope is in what he's describing there that Jesus is coming back for us. That's the revealing of the glory of God, that Jesus is going to come back for us. And this time when He comes back, the Bible says He's not going to come back with regard to sin the way He did before, but He's going to come back for His church. He's going to come back for those who love Him, who are eagerly waiting for His return, who have a hope, who have a hope. Now, there have been generations that have lived so conscious of this hope and their music was so full of this hope that they didn't bother to be careful how they lived in this life. So all they did was live with the blessed assurance that Jesus was coming back for them. But then the pendulum has shifted and we've come over to the place where we are right now where we're so conscious of living well and God taking care of us and being blessed in this life, we have very little thought or attention to the real hope. And the result is the church has begun, not begun, the church has, be, has, has invested its hope in God's blessing and provision in this world. And God will provide for us, and God will take care of us, and God wants to bless us, but He doesn't want our hope invested in the things of this world. But if you don't keep your eyes on the blessed assurance... If you don't keep that as your perspective, then you can't handle 
the stuff of this world because you've got to have your hope in something. And if you don't... See, this, you've got to work to do this because you can't see this. You've got to work to keep your hope, your eyes on that hope because it's not here yet in our eyes. It's here by the Word and we know it's coming because we have a down payment of it. We know it's coming. But if you don't keep your eyes on that, you'll begin to set your eyes on the things of this world and you because you've got to have hope in something, you'll begin to invest your hope in the things of this world. And that's what's happened in the church is we've gotten so conscious of God providing for us and prospering us and He'll do those things but not at the expense of the true hope, the living hope. So then what happens is when this hope gets shaken and the Word of God goes on to say, and it will get shaken, because it says everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And the only thing that will remain is that which has come from God, and that, that is God Himself and the hope that we have. See, in the day and age that Paul lived in, you didn't have all those things to have your hope in. And my concern is we've raised a church that's spiritually flabby, so if all those things we spend all our time looking for and trusting and believing for, if all of those things suddenly go away, what's our hope in? So we've got to begin to change now. We've got to begin to change and consciously put our focus. And the, and the wonderful thing is, tribulation gives you a chance to do it. That's what the Word of God says. The stuff, and people are going through stuff now. Where people are going through financial pressure, people, and those are wonderful opportunities. I've been rereading a book by George Mueller. George Mueller is an amazing guy. George Mueller, back in the first part of the, of the 1800s, built a series of orphanages in Bristol, England. At one point, he was housing 2,500 orphans. And every penny every stitch of clothes, every ounce of food that came into those orphanages, the buildings, the land, all came simply by George Mueller asking God. He never asked anybody for anything. He never made a need known even to his staff. And this took place over a period of like 60 years over and over and over again. And he said, I learned that when the tough times came, because there were tough times, they would get down to nothing, but God always provided something. And he said, I got to rejoice in the times when we got down to nothing because I couldn't be putting my trust in how much was stored up in the cupboard from last week because I had to go back and again set my trust in God. And he said, I did this for two reasons. One reason was to provide for the orphans. But he said, that wasn't my main reason. The main reason I did this is because I became aware that we had a generation of Christians who had no confidence that God would do what He said. And he said, I believed that if God would use me to build orphanages, clothe, feed orphans without ever telling anybody but God what I needed, there would be a tangible proof out there for generations that God is faithful 
to do what he says. He learned. And in the process, he said, I have learned. I have learned, just like Paul. And he didn't learn it in a book. There's some things we can learn by reading books, but there's some things that get down in you by going through. When Paul says in Romans 8 at the end, I am persuaded. He wasn't persuaded because he'd read a number of books on God's faithfulness. He was persuaded because of all the things he'd been through, he'd never seen God fail him. George Mueller said, I'm persuaded because of all 60 years of this, I've never seen God fail. I've seen us come down to nothing, but I've seen God always provide just in the nick of time so that my confidence was never in what I had. It was always in the God who was faithful to provide. But you learn that by the attitude you have going through the tribulation so that his hope was never in the stuff that he had. His hope was in the God who had promised him. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 and we'll end with this verse. And this is, I believe, God speaking to us. He's talking here about suffering. The type of suffering that God has ordained. Verse 13 says, Who is he will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, that's persecution, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats or be troubled. And here's the way to avoid being troubled when you're being attacked. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Sanctify means put Him first. See, there's a confidence that comes There's a confidence that comes when you put Him first. The same confidence that we know when we stand before Him, that I put Him first. I've been perfect. He didn't say be perfect. He said sanctify Him. Sanctify means set apart. Sanctify the Lord. Sanctify Him. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. In other words, when you're going upstream and people around you begin to realize, wait a minute, you're going through all this and you're smiling and you've got a positive attitude? Where does that come from? Well, I've been reading good books. No, no. Be prepared to give a defense of the hope that is in you, which means you've got to know what it is. You've got to know what it's based on because that's how God will use you to reach people. It's not what you say so much as what you live. And you share it with meekness and with humility, with fear. I remember when we were living in Oklahoma and I was practicing law in this law office and we were going through a challenging financial time, one of which, part of which I had explained, talked in a testimony I did a few months ago or so on a Sunday morning. It was really tight. And, and I was, my first 
position in this firm, and I, my last law office had been uh, in an office overlooking um, Government Center in Boston. The other side of the office was overlooking Boston Harbor, the 20th floor of a skyscraper in a large law firm. The next office I had was a broom closet in Tulsa. I was sharing it with some law school interns. God was testing me. There was a lot of pride that had to be worked out of me. But I developed the attitude that God, there's something in here for me to learn. I may not know what it is, but instead of complaining and getting upset, show me what it is. Before I was finished, I had the second best office in the place. But the office didn't matter. In this process, the senior partner's daughter comes to me. I'm passing around the hall with some books in my hand, and she says, can I ask you a question? And I said, yes. She says, what do you have that I don't have? And I'm thinking of a book that I got in my hand or something. I said, well, what do you mean? She says, no. There's a piece about you. I've watched you, she said. I've watched what you go through, and I've watched you. There's something you have I don't have. Then I realized what was going on here. I said, do you really want to know? See, when you get the fish on the hook, you've got to let them play with the bait a little bit. She said, yeah. I said, come here. So we went into the, the law library. And I said, it's not what I have. It's who I have. And she kind of looked at me. And I said, the only reason I have something that you see is it's Jesus in my life. And she kind of looked at me with a strange look, and she said, oh. Because I don't think it was what she was expecting but it got in her. Now, I left not long after that, so I don't know what happened to her. I just know there was an opportunity and there was a seed that planted because I was walking in that confident expectation, not in the circumstances I was going through, but my confidence was in my God that He would see me through, that I was serving Him, I was sanctifying Him as Lord in my heart. And as a result she saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself. That's what Jesus means when he says, go be my witness. It's fine to stand on corners and hand out tracts. That's the act of witnessing. But the far more effective way is to be your own track. To be your own video. Because then there's credibility. Instead of just words on a page... There's events in your life and attitudes in your life. People are watching you in your families, at work, even in church. I had no idea she was watching me. I had no idea. I had other people come up to me and observe things. I had no idea. They're watching you no matter which way you handle it. We are a witness of something. The question is, are we a witness of Him or are we a witness of what we're like without Him?